And I figured out that the April is National Poetry Month, Jazz Appreciation Month, and Alcoholics Awareness Month. I was like, oh, well, wow. that's that's perfect. Yes, that's a lot of things. That can't be true. <laughs> At least two out of three. I'm pretty sure all three of them are true. And they do dovetail nicely. Yeah. April April is a busy month. And then August now with the Sealy Challenge, if you're familiar with the Sealy Challenge. It's uh, to read a book of poetry every day in the month of August. So now, now August is blowing up with poetry as well of reading a poetry collection every day. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's quite a challenge. I haven't, yeah. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I don't know. That's like that's a lot of dedication. I guess you can get like chat books and make that count. If you're selective, you can yeah. probably. Uh, poem a day, I think, is doable. For yeah. me, the nightmare is novel writing November. You're supposed to like try to write an entire draft yeah. of a novel. That, that one kills me. <laughs> yeah, I've never been able to complete. I've attempted a few times, but have never gotten to do it. Like, never never wrote every day. Yeah, no, there's a certain time. amount of words you'd have to do every day or something like that. I need more uh, extrinsic motivation. I need there to be like a reward for completing it other than they just say, oh, congratulations, you did it. I need I need some sort of recognition and like so much more applause than what they offer <laughs> for me to follow through in it. That's actually a really good starting point because one of the things I'm always curious about uh, creative process generally, but motivation and consistency more specifically um so yeah when you were kind of getting started what were some of those early pings where you're like oh that, that feels really good that's reinforcement that's encouragement and it kind of got you to that next level up can you can you remember kind of any key moments where you, you might have gotten blocked out but then you made it to the next level in the video game uh yes actually there was a moment so i i live in the outskirts of dc now but i used to live in wyoming in the upper northwestern corner in jackson hole it's on the corner near Idaho. And uh, the library there hosted Tracy K. Smith, who was the poet laureate of the United States for a while. And she came to the library and hosted a workshop. And it, it was hosted by the library, so it was free for anybody to go. And And I went, and it was a generative workshop. We were writing poems, and there were maybe uh, 20, 30 people there in the room. And I read one of my poems out loud and there is this very well-known poet from the area. His name is Matt, Matt Daly. And he was like, whoa, you need to write poetry. And I was like, oh my God, really? <laughs> uh, but I didn't still. I didn't write poetry maybe for another couple of years. It just never called to me. I was more of a playwright and I was working on a memoir of a time traveling around, uh, not time traveling, my time as I traveled around Iceland. And I was also working on a novel, which has now been put on the back burner. But so I just had other, I had other things to do than write poetry. And it really wasn't until my dad got sick, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. 
that I just instinctively turned to poetry in a way that I've never turned to writing before. And it was surprising to me as well that that happened. It it kind of fell out of the blue and, and I didn't tell anybody, I wasn't getting any uh, of that extrinsic motivation to keep going, but because I had kind of resided in the literary world, I knew about submitting to literary magazines and, uh, and that process. And so I just sent my poems out to some literary mags that didn't have any uh, reading submission fees just to see what happened. Cause you know, it doesn't cost anything to submit and the worst they can say is no. And I got some immediate yeses and I was able to share with my dad before he passed away about five different poems that were accepted for publication. And so it was really special for me to be able to share that beginning of my journey with him before he passed away. And then since then, it just really took over my entire life. I was writing poems. I, I lived with him in hospice for two weeks before he passed, and I was just writing poems all day, every day. It was just what was spewing out of me. And I needed a place for all of it to go. And I ended up leaving my what I thought was my dream job. I have a master's in ecology focused on science, communication, and education. And I landed executive director of a science education nonprofit. That was just like the end all be all for me. That was my dream job. And I was living it. And I realized that wasn't my dream job. And I needed to focus on writing. And I ended up resigning from that position, getting a low paying but very flexible job in uh, caregiving. I was a caregiver for adults with intellectual disabilities. And that allowed me to go back to school. And it was during the pandemic, so everything was all virtual. And I got my degree in English uh, part-time and was able to hone my craft and attend virtual workshops. Now, workshops that are in New York and Los Angeles and Canada and all over the world are now virtual. It really opened the door for emerging and aspiring writers like I am to be able to have access to all of these resources that I didn't have access to before, especially in rural Wyoming. (laughs) We just, we have a writing community, but it's definitely not as vast and um, as wide ranging as the writing community of the world. And, and so that really helped to bolster me. And I just climbed the rungs of the ladder, sent out my work and ignored all the no's and just reveled in the occasional yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, then I had to call my mom and say, well, I'm about to do my favorite thing. I'm about to tell other journals I have to withdraw a poem because it was accepted elsewhere. <laughs> And and so I got I got a lot of elect, uh, extrinsic congratulations from my mother too, so that was helpful as well. That she didn't say like, "Oh, what are you doing writing poetry?" and "Why did you quit your well-paying, secure job in order to do this?" She thought it was great, you know. She or if she didn't, she kept it to herself. Yeah. So that was a long-winded That's- answer to that question. That's what we're looking for. That's it's a beautiful thing, and uh, you know, I was kind of wondering for myself when I think about extrinsic versus intrinsic. Um, I'm taking care of my 84 year old dad right now, 
And so there is a part of my brain that's just kind of locked off in the practical stuff. Here, here is the day-to-day that has to be uh, taken care of just from a kind of managing the homestead situation. Uh, but then sometimes there'll be a little crossover between that and the creative brain. And if they can, if there's a little oxygen shared between the two worlds, it kind of opens both of them up. And it's, you know, I wouldn't wish anything like that on anyone, but I wonder if that was kind of an intrinsic thing that then also got encouraged by the extrinsic factors. Um, but now it sounds like you did exactly the kind of thing you'd want to look back on and say, ah, that's I made the right choices and I actually took charge. That might have been a regret that you might have if you hadn't. Oh, if only I quit my nice job and, uh, and gone back to school and really hit writing. So that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Don't you have a little... Uh little inkling in your brain too that someone else might benefit from the story that you share that someone else might be going through a similar experience about caring for an elderly parent but as a writer you're able to put it into words in a way that they wouldn't be able to you know the the radio show this american life yes are you familiar with this on npr so oftentimes i'll listen to that and think Oh, hell, there are other people going through the exact same thing I'm going through. Shouldn't I be able to communicate that well, that successfully, a human universal experience? And then the self-esteem or self-doubt thing, will, <laughs> that lone moral will start. No, you're not good enough to communicate that level of uh, detail and oh, absolutely, yeah. human feeling. So that, that guy swoops into the party and kills it. Um, but yes, absolutely, uh, storytelling. Um I often run myself through the simulation. If it's the apocalypse and I have to join a tribe or a little colony of like 200 people, what's what's my function? What's my role in that colony? And very limited carpentry skills. Um, you know, should not have all my fingers uh, in terms of what I can like build. A gra- okay with gardening, okay, that's fine. But storyteller, like that's an essential function of a society: teacher, storyteller, somebody who is able to kind of get at those human core universals the and bard get into that role before i get eaten <laughs> uh-huh. yes you're you're the one making the the riddles for the trolls under the bridge so that you don't get eaten by them <laughs> i was thinking about cannibalism but that's fine <laughs> or, i like, you know, your, either I like or. your favorite version better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yes you have a little bit of that trickster energy, Chris. I think you're kind of you're in that. Oh yeah, gesture. If we're if we're in the right yeah. society in the right time frame, court gesture would one hundred percent be the distance between me and being beheaded for sure. Yeah, and in terms of what you were saying about the the lawnmower of self doubt, uh, I think everybody experiences that. And one thing that has helped me overcome it is. Uh, a strategy that I learned in therapy, which I have been in a lot of. And one of them is to change your what if to even if, and then finish the sentence. So something in my brain might go like, what if I write this collection and nobody wants to pick it up? Like, even if I write this collection and no publisher wants it, it still means a lot to me. And individual magazines might want individual pieces. Okay, so then what if a publisher does pick it up, but then nobody wants to buy it? It's like, okay, even if a publisher picks it up and nobody wants to buy it, 
then I know at least my friends are going to. And it's it's a meaningful story for me and for my family. So even if nobody else reads it, it's still important for them. Okay, so then what if my publisher picks it up, people read it, and then they hate it? <laughs> and I'm disgraced and all of the reviews are bad. And uh, that would that would hurt because this collection really surrounds my father and it's, you know, very precious subject to me. So that, oh, that would, that would sting. Uh, but again, it's not for them then it's just for me. And I'll write other collections that they might hate just as well, but <laughs> I'll just, you know, I have to have to do it for me and, and for the people around me who are going to be my forever cheerleaders anyway. So I could write the most horrible dribble and they'll, tell me it's great. And that's who I write for. <laughs> it's a kind of a, that's a foolproof, uh, foolproof system. Uh, first of all, I feel like I should uh, fire my therapist. I feel like I got more out of that. <laughs> what if, even if uh, generative exercise than about the last six weeks that I've been with my. It's uh, so <laughs> helpful. I do. It's I really use good. it for everything. I use it for everything. Yeah, because I got the what if monster, or the, you know, the, the hamster wheel of second guessing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh -huh. really nice. Yes. Uh, going along with analysis paralysis. Yeah, for sure. Erin, mm -hmm. uh, you're, we're, <laughs> she's in our wheelhouse. We have conversations like this, you know, just out commiserating as two guys all the time. Uh, so kind of nice to hear somebody verbalize it that intelligently who also has made seemingly tremendous progress in the face of that kind of thing. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's a great little twist. I'm trying to think it's like not coming to me right off the top of my head, but I, I haven't heard that quite specifically in, in that wording, but there is like a little what if twist and maybe it'll come to me later. But yeah, just that, that kind of reframing technique. I mean, over and over again, it takes that repetition kind of to, to do it. And then you kind of just kind of catch yourself doing it automatically. Yeah, those are those are always good. It's good to know. I wrote that one down. If you're a writer, you've had that thought of like, you look at the thing you wrote, no matter if you looked at it 50 times or 100 times, or, you know, you're going back to it for the first time after you wrote it, and you have that thought like, this isn't anything like, I nobody would want this, or this isn't any good. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's, yeah, on one hand, that's just, that's how it is. That's what being a writer is. You're going to have that. But then just, I guess that's the, that's the trick of it is to kind of keep going. And yeah, along the way, sometime you're going to need a little bit of like, of a, a signal that you are communicating something. So and yeah. It's also not, a it's, reminder it's that, a, yeah, also a, a reminder that there are going to be people who don't like your work and that's okay. There, your work is not for them. Then there are poems and even collections of poems by famous and Pulitzer prize winning poets that I don't like, and I don't get the hype about, uh, but that doesn't mean that their poetry is bad because I, one person in living in nowhere, Virginia didn't like it. So also keeping that, in mind as well that the audience for your work will find you and appreciate you even if it's a smaller one my uh my side hustle is as a, a jazz piano player so a um I, i'm used to small crowds <laughs> i'm used to very tiny audiences uh but b you have to say well there's almost 
similar to poetry, there's a stereotype about jazz that it's kind of pretentious and full of itself. And it can be. The problem is that there's really pretentious, esoteric, look at me and how good I am jazz. And so just to kind of be aware of that, know that's, that's kind of what you signed up for. And I fell into what I would think of as a more populist kind of jazz, like New Orleans swing or New Orleans Dixieland. And I realized I like that more. I'm not just trying to impress other musicians. And then that makes more response from the audience. So from a writing standpoint, you don't you don't try to write to impress other writers. You write what's kind of true yourself and what you know, feels good and speaks to you. And a lot of times that will reach more people because it's got that authenticity. Yes, absolutely. And and just keeping that in mind that there are all sorts of people who appreciate all sorts of different writings. And I was just in a book club uh, on Tuesday about fat girl forms. And I loved this book because I love writing poetry in form. So when I was going through them and there were one types of forms that I had never heard of and don't even know how to pronounce like Rubiat. I'll put it up here for you to see. Rubiat. So that's a form that I should have learned in my grad school in English. Yeah. So I've been working on uh, looking all of them up the ones that I don't know to find what the the rules of the constraints are. Um, and so I loved it. I loved finding out, like looking things up and and then learning what the form was and then being like, oh, wow, like she did that in that way. But then other people in the book club were like, I didn't want to look things up. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to have to do homework when I'm reading a poetry collection. <laughs> um, Yes, but then there are other collections that have to do with like historical documents and their erasures of historical documents and oh they're so meaningful for that reader and it's like oh I don't want to have to look up what the historical document was originally for me to be able to get this. Ugh. Um so there takes all different kinds of uh readers and appreci uh, appreciators of art and and some people are going to hate on whatever you do. Like, it doesn't matter what you do. They're just not going to like, or maybe there will be people who don't like poetry at all or jazz piano. So just, you got to keep going. And, you know, maybe if you keep hearing the same things over and over, then maybe you can just ask yourself um, about it and then explore it with without defense and just say, oh, is that true about my work? Uh, let me think about it. Or like, ask trusted peers about about it um but yeah try not to take it personally because you know it isn't personal about you or your character the trust is you know wh whoever it is friend or just person offering feedback is so important because yeah you don't want to be in a situation where you're just taking everybody's like scattered like oh i don't like this type of poem well i'm not gonna do that anymore um <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. kind of that kind of a little more of a you want to be you know receptive to it and everything but yeah kind of having that a little bit more of a trusted source sources mm -hmm. um and even when i give feedback as an editor and you know just kind of in that engaging place with it kind of dig, digging your hands in like i always say like do what you want with it like you, you know these are ideas these are suggestions or thoughts um take them leave them you know and many the majority of the time I, I hear back that they take the majority but it's not 100 percent right and for sure it shouldn't be that would be kind of like a little bit strange i took all of your suggestions and did everything <laughs> mm -hmm. 
I've been a proofreader for full length collections. And every time that I've met with a, a poet, I've told them these are all with a question mark at the yeah. end, like change this question mark. If the answer is no, then you leave it. You know your work better than I do. And if I suggest a comma placement or suggested a word change and that doesn't flow with what you're trying to communicate, you know, I'm not offended by that. I'm only here to invite you to think of your poems in new ways. And if you don't want to accept the invitation, that is totally fine. Yeah, I know there's only there's only a couple I can remember. There are some that are like, no, do this. And so the one I remember just last, last week with the word facet was in a poem and it should have been faucet. <laughs> so like you mean faucet. Yes. 100% yeah. change it. So yeah, there faucet? are times where there are more objective. <laughs> there are more objective kind of, you know, you know, this this goes here, that goes there. Uh, but yeah, the overwhelming majority is like, especially in poetry where the form is is um way more yeah, subjective. Yeah, the rules than are prose. much more yeah. relaxed. Mm -hmm. So yeah, because even things like periods and commas could maybe exactly are, are, are there might not debate. be punctuation at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, def definitely. Um, I yeah, I love that feedback process and that that back and forth of it. Mm -hmm. um, and during my collection, Survive By, it was a, a little bit difficult for me to solicit feedback because it is such a sensitive subject. And I felt like in some feedback groups, people felt like they couldn't give feedback because they also didn't. And sometimes I'm reading the poem and I'm crying. And so then they don't want to tell me like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> or like, uh, or any anything negative. And so I solicited feedback from my poet friends who I know also experienced loss and maybe also recently and have poems about their loved ones who passed away. And so then they kind of get it. You know, it's it's not I'm bringing this to feedback, not because I just want to share and it's cathartic but because I really want to honor this person with my work and I'm not going to be able to do that in the best way unless I get this honest feedback from you. And, um, and, and those were the folks who gave me the most help on my poems that I was able to go through my, my poems and look at their feedback and say, Oh, wow. Like I didn't see that before. Thank you for pointing it out. And um, my good friend, Larissa, who is my uh, teaching assistant in the Community Literature Initiative, and uh, she, I, I love her style of poetry, and I love her insights, and she was my uh, line editor, and she just, like, went through, and it's like, you know, these heartbreaking scenes, me living in hospice, and she's just highlighting more imaginative language here, <laughs> or, like, this is boring, <laughs> like, you're showing, not tell, or you're telling, not showing. And it's just like, yes, thank you for being honest and pointing those things out because I really want to convey uh, this, these, especially these tragic scenes in a way that feels touching and artistic and poetic. And if I'm writing it like a journal or a blog post, I, I'm not conveying it the same way. And so I really appreciated that feedback from folks who also had gone through something similar than I had. Good point. And they're my target well, audience. So that is exactly. even more helpful. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Now it might be a good 
time to talk a little bit about the Palm Prairie Fire. Does that sound okay? Sure, yes. Um, is that one in the collection or is that separate? It's not. That was part of another uh, smaller collection about my time living in Wyoming. It was uh, a collection inspired by different natural elements of the you know, the natural world in Wyoming, a specific species, plant species, animal species, rivers, mountain names. And I, I completed that collection, but it's still kind of floating around the ether uh, right now as I'm focusing on the collection that did get picked up. But I still want to I still want to send it out to publishers and see where there might be interest in it as well. It's called YWY like the state abbreviation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mentioned um, the Prairie Fire poem appeared in uh, Wild Root Journal. It was uh, back in issue 11 uh, from November 2021. So I, we kind of chatted before and uh, I could speak for myself. I think, Chris, you're on board with this statement. Uh, we love hearing behind the scenes from, from writers who wrote the poems. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, even though it was a little bit a while ago at this point, I wanted to take an opportunity to let you just, maybe you could read the poem too. Do you have it sure. available or give you a second to pull it up? Uh, um, yes, I have it. But um, I think the iteration that I have is a different one that's in the, that's in the, the journal, but I, I think I only yeah, okay. changed minor things. Like it's in couplets now. I'm not sure if it was in couplets before. Um, but it's more or less the same poem. Um, but yes, I did bring it up because I thought maybe you would ask. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> why don't we um, uh, have you read it and then just kind of just share a little bit of, of the insight. You don't have to give away all your secrets, but maybe one or two secrets. Sure, um, yes, I'd love to. And then, and then, yeah, we'll go from there. Okay, Prairie Fire. Grovant Buttes Lie. Still as prairie fire rouge their cheeks. Ablaze roots envelop these false names defined in colonial history books, replace them with the constellation stories buried in dirt and stone, letting more and more crimson bracks stake claim to their home. These hills are aflame, but no smoke obscures the sun who lingers on every inch of sky beaming assured that it's looking at its reflection on the side of the mountain whose name too fell to white tongues generations ago. Uh, so this was a poem that was inspired by um, the, the flower prairie fire is the state flower of Wyoming. And it's found pretty common in the mountains and you can see it um, shining red in, in fields as it blooms. And it kind of um, is, kind of takes over certain spaces. So then the whole field looks red. And even when there are other colored flowers in it, you're really only seeing these red bracts that are sticking out of the out of the grass. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so I was thinking about um those those landscapes where I was living in Teton County and feeling inspired by them, but then also thinking about how Almost everything that I was looking at had its name chosen for it by the colonizers and how I, I didn't know what the, the traditional or the original names of 
these plants and these mountain ranges, I didn't know what they were. Um, what did the indigenous tribes call them before I was there? And so it's also a reflection of that as well. And um, utilizing the term prairie fire is like all the one, the only one that I know. And so it's also a reflection of my own ignorance as well. But being, I guess, mindful that I'm living in this society that's kind of been um, decided for me by the people who took over um, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Awesome. Okay, excellent. <laughs> yeah. So the, my first time reading through, and I didn't, I didn't get to have a, a copy in front of me as you were reading, um, was one of the changes, um, uh, American history books to colonial history books. Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. right. Wow, so, that's a good memory. Holy smokes. Yeah. Well, that that phrase kind of is kind of it has little neon lights around it, right? So I immediately like locked onto that. And as I appraise the, the poem as a whole, um, I think, and don't let me put words in your mouth, Erin, that the Wild Roof largely has a recurring theme of nature uh, in the very immediate, very zoomed in uh, microcosm, but then macrocosm implications. You know, it's kind of the, the ethos. And so naturally, we're going to get a lot of poems that have natural beauty and then larger abstract statement drawn out of these little you know, microcosms like the haiku is when done right the haiku is the most crystalline pure version of that it's that that's the that's the stuff that gets boiled down um when it works so yeah so it's kind of right looking for pings as to here's an actual scene that i want to be in it's beautiful it's peaceful it inspires awe and then kind of what I'm often cynically looking for is oh I know a political message is about to come on <laughs> and uh, so I'm kind of used to scanning a poem for that and what I loved about this piece is it just seemed very slow had very patience and the beauty's there and all of that's to say I think uh, American history books to colonial history books might be good because it's a little bit more of a zoom out makes a similar point but um i've been thinking about this a lot lately where um land acknowledgements kind of the importance of thinking how, how how much we got plopped here uh you know as you said just kind of with so much ignorance and not not a firm understanding of our setup and i'll use the word privilege and i like to zoom out that level i think that's super wholesome and like good for perspective and humility. And then you can zoom out to another kind of anthropological level to at what point did Homo sapiens get to North America in the first place? And then you can zoom out and say, well, there was seven human species on the planet 200,000 years ago, uh, one of which was Neanderthals who we either probably interbred and or wiped out of existence. So kind of looking at those different uh, levels from the single flower to the field, to these really big picture human implications. And I felt like your poem was really nicely navigating those without hitting anybody over the head. Thank you. Yes, uh, that that tweak that you mentioned uh, was brought about, brought about when I brought that poem to a workshop, uh, our feedback circle. And uh, another poet asked me 
well, who made who wrote those American textbooks? And prompting, oh, which, but which textbooks and written by whom? And maybe what the implications of that are and who is American? What is considered what an American textbook is? And, you, you know, it was just a word that I kind of put in there flippantly, not, not with any uh, specific intention. And I, it was a really thought, those were really thought provoking questions. And so that prompted me to reconsider the word choice there. Mm -hmm. That's so great that you noticed. Yeah. Yeah, the Chris, you're, you yeah, you hit you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, so that that's totally why kind of um, you know why this piece was accepted, why we liked it, why it fits. You know that that's that's yeah. In a nutshell, yeah, you hit it. Um, so I don't really want to add too much to to what you said because I I feel like I'd be repetitive. And I think because of my ecology background that I tend to lean toward natural elements of the world and use them a lot in metaphors. And even when I'm talking about or writing about grief, or I'm writing about love, or I'm writing about other subjects that metaphors having to do with the natural world seem to just naturally come to me it's where my mind goes first and i i uh it's so in the ether right now to sort of have these bigger picture thoughts as they relate to things like racial demographics and history or erasure is a word um re really try to uh, rework and more deeply understand but it's, it's also kind of ties back to the the most essentially cliche huh my love is like a red red rose uh, love and a flower i think that's get the most cliche basic metaphor but then you can also play games like well the reason comparing people to plants uh is probably goes back to things like mesopotamia and what are your two what are your two big metaphors uh, grain and fish there's plenty of fish in the sea and grain is the thing that we live on so there's like these, these weirdly essential strands and they come up again and again and again so the fact that it's been around since we started writing poetry means it can always be done differently and can be added to and uh, nuanced and tweaked and reinvigorated with kind of these new layers uh, of the current cultural conversation in mind comparing humans to plants but then also referring to plants as humans i know at least in the iroquois tradition they had the three sisters where they planted the three different types of plants together, the corn with the squash and the broad leaves were able to prevent the um, the weeds from sprouting. And then the, the beans would be able to grow up the corn stalks. And so they were all planted together, but referring to them as three sisters, um, you know, there's, there's a poem in there too. See, there I go again with my human-centric bias, assuming superiority of human over plants. Exactly right. Beautiful. Yeah, and we, I mean, we all need kind of this narrative vehicle to kind of pass along information. So, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's, I mean, talk about essentially human, yeah. Is there, we'll kind of do like a little pause and then kind of go in a different direction. Um, but just to kind of like follow the circuit, 
So you, you mentioned your upcoming book, Survived By. Is there kind of anything else you want to like share about that? You kind of you talked a little bit more um, kind of generally about it. Um, it does come out, so I think, um, in April. April um, 30th, so last this day month, of the, poetry month. If you're listening yeah. to this, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Later this, later this month. Um, but yeah, I'll just kind of give you an opportunity if you, if you wanted to share anything else about that. Sure, yes. So the um, the collection comes out on the 30th. Um, and alongside this collection, I've been developing a writing workshop as well called um, Finding the Poem in the Pain. And it's a generative writing workshop that can also act as a catharsis or it can act as... Um, uh, I wouldn't say therapy. I'm not a licensed therapist, but I would say that it's it can be therapeutic as just writing is therapeutic. And it, it gently brings people through some writing prompts to be able to write about things and just get things out of them that maybe they've been holding on to or that they have been feeling blocked by and use utilizing poetry examples from other poets and from my own collection in how I was able to write about my grief journey without um, uh, without losing my mind, uh, without re-traumatizing myself and, and allowing people to use those same writing prompts and same writing exercises to be able to generate um, work of their own. One of my quotes that I, one of my, the quotes that is one of my mantras is attributed to Carrie Fisher. Um, she said, take your broken heart, make it into art. And so it's really focused on utilizing our negative experiences to build meaning and to build beauty from them as well. And even if a poem isn't beautiful, I know that at least for myself, when I was going through extreme grief, I was most consoled and comforted from the poems that described what I was going through and they were brutal and they were ugly. And maybe the writers who wrote them when they wrote them or published them, maybe they felt cringy by them or they felt that, you know, that was too emotional or too dramatic. But when I read them, I felt really connected to that writer. Like, yes, they understand what this feels like. And coming from a point of view that someone will need to read your words. Someone will have gone through your experience and not be able to put to words their own experience the way that you can. And, and having that, um, having that be kind of a motivation or inspiration to be able to put forth your work um, without any obligation to then share your poems that you generate or anything. It's, it's more just a, a way for people to, to get it, to get it out of them, not necessarily into the world, but just out of them in the first place. And so I'm, I'm now booking for the summer and I'm also booking for the fall. If anybody is interested in hosting me, um, then they can be in touch. I want to be in touch because, yeah, we're thinking along parallel lines, I think, in terms of like what I'm kind of cooking up in terms of uh, things I would like to kind of present and in, um, in, in terms of workshops and things like that. So um, we'll chat off off mic um, just to kind of get into some of those details. Um, but yeah, yes. I, just in general, I love that idea so much. I'm, I'm um, 
I'm all for that kind of process where, like you said, it's not a writer's workshop in terms of like the manuscript, the publication thing. It's more in that um, self-development, self-guidance. Exactly. Um, Very gentle. I developed this workshop in conjunction with a program that I completed last year, a certificate in social emotional arts through UCLA Arts and Healing. And so utilizing their best practices to develop a creative writing workshop with a focus on social emotional arts and with a focus of therapeutic healing rather than generation or publication or submission. It's more about the process than the product. And so I think that's what allows it to be for anyone of any level, that there's no pressure to perform in any way. And it's only for the participants. It's not for uh, any kind of external um, audience. There's some good stuff coming out of UC Berkeley, which is there's nothing new here, but it's a resurgence of interest in restorative writing, uh, doing writing classes in prisons for a prison community. And then when they get out of prison, there's kind of a pipeline program uh, that's kind of seemingly, according to the hype, kind of growing organically. And I used to be a little cynical about that. Um, and then I started getting into like trauma and trauma-informed classrooms and doing workshops mm-hmm. on dealing with trauma. And the two things I'd say about that is I I knew that was true for me intuitively from 16 to 22. I don't know what happened to 22. I got super. I had to go through the super cynical phase from like 22 to 31. Um, and then I started coming back around like, oh, oh, there's actually something happening about processing when you're writing an idea down. You're, you're, there's alchemy happening in the brain. It's, it's very real and now uh, Absolutely. scientifically accurate. And the other thing I'd say, I'm sure you probably already know this, but in case Aaron doesn't know this, uh, as teachers, we are absolutely not licensed 100% to do anything with mental health. However, uh, what we are 100% able to do within our peer view is deal with emotional well-being, emotional hygiene, emotional uh, stability. So in terms of legality, uh, uh, I went to a workshop that is the nice kind of tight legal way to keep your parameters straight. We're not practicing anything with regards to mental health, but we are able to engage in emotional hygiene and emotional well-being. Right. And what right. we learned in our class is uh, there's a difference between therapy and something that is therapeutic. Excellent. So, Excellent. Um, so sure <laughs> from a legal know. standpoint, because these, these situations do get dicey. Sure. Um, I had uh, last semester of or my first very serious situation that had to do with self-harm that could have gotten worst case scenario in as many 10 years. And so, yeah, kind of know it, knowing some of those parameters is very helpful just because it gives you a sense of boundaries and, and your own safety. Because inevitably, if you get a group of more than two people and tell them to write about difficulties in their past, eventually you're going to run into that situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and right, yeah, you don't have to come from a mindset of like a mental health or um, any emotional background to like to receive that if you're, you know, so that there there is kind of that that give and take. But I was just going to say, say as kind of like a funny aside, like I, last week I played a, an Alan Watts, uh, quote, guided meditation. I called it a listening exercise. 
Um, so it has a kind of a course in Schroeder. It was it fit the the theme of you know listening in that in that phase of the writing process and kind of being receptive and kind of all those good things. But yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be okay. We're doing a meditation now. That's not quite like that's not my mm-hmm. job. Like that's not kind of what <laughs> what my sure. role is. I'm not. Um, I'm kind of not 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 in that um, not coming from that place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but someone you know, might find it connected. meditative. <laughs> yeah, it's it's clearly connected, right? It's not meditation; it's meditative. Yeah, I could use that. Mm-hmm. Um, or contemplative, maybe is a word. word yeah, I contemplative. Use in that case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, clearly these things are pretty pretty closely related and and kind of intersect at different different points. And if you if you listen to Alan Watts and feel worse, <laughs> I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to do with you. Um, yeah, so that that's that's awesome. So um, I'll I'll have a link available in our, our podcast page uh, on the Wild Roof Journal website um, to click on either pre-order or order officially or whatever the case is at, at that point. So uh, don't log off yet. We got more to talk about, but we'll um, just kind of come to a close for for a moment and um, say thank you so much for joining us. It was, it was great talking to you and we'll continue soon. Um, but for now, we'll say uh, see you later. Okay, great. Awesome thank you movie. so much. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for being such generous hosts. I really appreciate both of your company today. Thanks. You're welcome.